Would you say you have commitment issues? No. No, absolutely not. That sounds like the answer of somebody who has commitment issues. Hello and welcome to the Damn Venture Podcast, a podcast where we're stopping the flow of BS in the venture capital industry. I'm Andrew Chan, and today I'm excited to be joined by a host of pastries, as well as Abigail Rissi from Hyperplane Ventures. Prior to being on the investment team at Hyperplane, Abigail was a systems test engineer at iRobot. She graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering from UMass Amherst. Abigail, it's great to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I I am still upset that you ate the Cookie Monster before I got a photo. (laughs) Listen pastries and me there's no stopping no what's chill going to happen the pastries. absolutely not none yeah well I, I mean and i think that's a metaphor for your venture capital <laughs> career so far <laughs> um and, and and maybe that's the starting point we were talking before the podcast where we we're talking about pathways and adventure and, yeah. and what we think of engineering adventure i'm gonna flip the question you asked me back to you which is mm. how have you found your experience coming from a mechanical engineering systems test engineering background in working in venture capital that's i've i've actually thought about this a lot of like what what the edge to having a technical degree in a finance or a traditionally like finance heavy role and i don't i think besides i think all the i don't know all the all the things that you would typically think of like the analytics the frameworks that you're taught as an engineer, the 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 way that you think about problem solving and iterating, I think those are all those all hold true to why it's a good like you're throwing shit at a wall and you're seeing what sticks, and that type of fail fast and then fix it later or fix it on the go before you throw your next <laughs> ball at the wall. I think that's that's probably where I see most of the the edge materialize, I think. And and what led you into venture capital? What's what's the pathway for you? You were working at, at iRobot. Yeah, my path into venture. So I I'm gonna go back a little bit, but I grew up in Brookline, which is you know right outside of Boston. So I've always been here. But the community that I grew up in was a lot of academics, doctors. But there wasn't as you find in Massachusetts. In oh, one hundred percent. Yes, yeah. in an affluent suburb, one hundred percent. But we had a unique demographic in terms of our or the amount of people who were at Harvard and MIT and the Longwood area. So a lot of doctors, a lot of academics. There weren't too many finance parents or families, really. I mean, yeah, I think, or maybe not outward. Not as obvious, I don't think. Hidden hidden old money in the, in the Boston suburbs. Yes. Yeah, of course. Um, and so I think, or if it was, it was PE. It wasn't like early stage venture. So I didn't really have too much exposure to it, except for the one family that I was super close with. I, my, she, she was definitely like a role model. But her, so Katie Ray, who's currently the managing director at The Engine, she, I had interned for her at Project 11, which was her fund back, I don't know what year it was. It was, I think it was 2014 or 15. You're you're dating yourself here, man. (laughs) I know. But so that was my first intro to venture. I loved it. I think I liked the like fast paced collaborative stuff. And I wasn't really in the investment like weeds at that time. So I, I was still like very fundamentals. What is investing? What does a series A round look like? What does everything kind of mean? And I think that was just like, it was an it was a door that was open to a field that I had no exposure to like prior. We weren't taught about it. It wasn't like the sexy industry that it is today. We, you know, wasn't it wasn't something that people were doing as actively as they are today. So I interned for her again when we when she started the engine back in 2016. So I interned for her then. And that was an entirely different experience, but again, was one that I left the summer and was like, that, that shit's so cool. Like that, yeah. that's what and I want to do. In the words of, of Will, I am from the, the first robots comment is this shit's motherfucking dope. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I was infatuated with it. I was like, yeah. 
I can bring in the engineering skills. I can talk to people. You're constantly looking for creative ways to outsource diligence, to you know, talk to the Bob Langers and the George Churches of the world for diligence conversations. Like those were like we had I met Tim Cook that summer. Like he came into the office and was like just touring. Like also nice flex, but Oh, a hundred that was a hundred percent flex. Dropped no shame. But like that that was the kind of stuff that I was doing. And I was like, this is a job. This is what Katie gets to every day. Are you fucking kidding me? This is sick. So I left the engine and I I kind of understood that it was more of an exclusive field. I was like, all right, venture, we're gonna, you know, we'll revisit it once we get the MBA. But I for sure know nobody's looking at the UMass resume and being like, she's the VC we're going to pick. So I kind of, I put it aside. I did big tech for two years in product and then revisited the, the startup world because I think that regardless, big tech is not, was not my thing. I think there was... I, I wasn't, I was exposed to a lot of the big tech bureaucracy. Yeah. Big tech's not it. Yeah. You know, it's definitely not it. Can't innovate. <laughs> yeah. And it, it was just funny because you worked at iRobot. It's not like you were working at like Netscape or no. something like that. No, no. I was doing consumer hardware and robotics and it was just a very slow, big organization. And I don't think that with somebody who has like debilitating ADD and has to be like on 25 different like lines of thought at once. That was just so not conducive. So I had my like little existential quarter life crisis and I was like, I'm going to tap into the network that I developed at the engine. I'm going to call up every VC I ever met and we're going to try and get them to put me in one of their portfolio companies as a product manager. And we're going to start back the clawing of what I thought made a venture experience or a, a good venture you, resume. Do you mean the, the Sigma grind set? Yes. Is that, yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and so in that process, I met Samara Gordon, who is my boss, and Vivian and John at Hyperplane and Blake and Chris. And that was, that was the catalyst to six months later starting at hyperplane full-time on the investment team and here you are now and here we are on a podcast on a, it's shocking <laughs> shocking call to me a this. vc God, man yeah. I, I have a newsletter and now i'm on a podcast <laughs> yeah and, and I, I think that's actually a great segue so the topic of today's podcast as as much as we never actually formally define topics on mm-hmm. these episodes until i'm editing it in post <laughs> is loosely around Balancing what you do in VC with things to do outside, both for the startup ecosystem and beyond. And we're going to be talking a lot. One one part of Abigail's background that I left out is that she's actually my personal favorite instructor for spin classes at the local Boston Equinox. <laughs> yes. And you run a newsletter. Yes. So let's start with the newsletter, and then we'll go to spin I can I can tell you about all of the weird stuff that I've been up to and the reason I'm flying to Denver next week. Mm-hmm. But yeah, why did you decide to take over the newsletter? Yeah. Tell us about the newsletter. What is the newsletter? Yeah. What is a newsletter even? I mean, we, <laughs> we, we got to go back. Yeah, to we got to go back. Yeah. We don't know what these people know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the newsletter. So I'd always been like kicking around like an idea for some sort of project, creative outlet. I definitely am more of like a, I really do. I really do like, like try a bunch of stuff and just if I like something, I get hyper fixated on it and I want to be the best at it. But there is a lot of like the trial and error process of trying to foster some sort of creative process project is very it's like invigorate it's 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 super exciting and you know you know this from starting a podcast but the whole process is like soup it's it's exactly what engineering taught you was a good thing to to do to think about to grapple with it's a lot of iterative creative thinking trying stuff out if it doesn't work going back to the drawing board analyzing why it didn't work that kind of stuff so the the a b testing yes Yes, there we go and it sounds so nerdy but it's like when you think about it it's really not like it's just part of the process and that it was so natural so i've always i've always liked you know kicking around those types of ideas but what really pushed me to think about it more seriously and on a shortened timeline was one of the partners at hyperplane one of my bosses viv sent me 
this newsletter that used to be written by somebody named Nick Stewart. He's currently at Angelus, but he was at SVB at the time he was writing. Uh, it, RIP, by the way. Oh, just, I know. <laughs> too soon, too soon, too soon, too soon. And so he forwarded me this newsletter, and I, I had heard about it before. It was basically what Nick did was he aggregated all the Form D filings. So he would scrape the Form D filings for Boston. He would find the startups. He would leave out the funds, unless they were like you know, super relevant to early stage. But he would basically find all the companies that had raised money, either debt, equity, warrants, whatever. And he would figure out, do some investigative work and figure out if it was announced, where the company had had received funding from before. Was this their first institutional round? Was this a stealth that he like found on the Form D filings? And this was going to be like the next big company and whatever. And then he would he would he would include like deal write up some weeks. He would do what am I reading? What's relevant? Here's you know, here are the top three things that I'm thinking about this week, whatever. So Viv forwarded me that and he was like, this would be really cool if it came back. You should you should think about this. So immediately I emailed Nick and I was like, hey, look, well, I don't know what's going on with the newsletter, but I heard it was discontinued. You want to give me the reins and I'll take it from you. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, yeah, cool. But yeah, so I reached out to Nick and I was basically like, I'll take, I'm going to, I would love to take this over from you. I think it's something that Boston needs. Let me know if that is possible. He was like, yeah, sure. Like he was so, he was so fucking cool. He was so great, great about it. But he like walked me through his frameworks, how he thought about what he was posting and how he dealt with like viewership and open rate and you know, all of the the clicks and devices and opens and and then all of the resources that he used to pull from the funding or to pull fundings from. And that was like a three month conversation. And then so we met a few times and then I started my I think my first first one was the fourteenth of February, I think, but or thirteenth of February. But the so far I've put out three. And so what I'm doing is I'm putting out I'm putting out the Form D filings, or not Form D filings, but I'm scraping Crunchbrace, PitchBook, the Form Ds, and then writing up little like blurbs about them. And then I have like a, a little like section where I summarize macro stuff, like the biggest stories, and then like local local features of startups that are based in Boston and locally small businesses which is really fun actually. And then, yeah, I'll do like a, an, and that comes out every other week. Cause usually there aren't too many companies for a one week. Yeah, no, I mean, thing. it makes sense if you're accumulating deal flow too. Yeah. It's, you're... it's kind of a lot, but, but yeah, so it's good. And I really it's like good. it. The, I think the, I think the best part about it has just been like more of a brand building. Like, I don't think I've really seen too much materialize from like a deal flow sure, perspective. But, but that's, I mean, that's not the point about it, right? Mm-mm. Part of it too is, is this, this concept that we're, we're kind of reflecting on of, of creative outlets. Yeah. And <clears throat> yeah. Finding ways to do your job in venture capital in more creative, innovative ways and, and ways that totally. like don't feel repetitive and mechanical. Yeah. And I think there's a, there's a, uh, there's an obvious benefit to doing something that's public facing, like a podcast or a newsletter in the sense of let's build my brand, let's build my firm's brand, let's put us out there in a public facing forum. But there's also just so much benefit to being like thinking creatively and thinking about your industry in a way that other people aren't or approaching thinking about deals and how companies are funded and different ways of funding. I think honestly, one of the biggest learnings that I've taken away from it is that start not all startups, you know, and I always knew this, but I think I didn't really know it until I saw it tangibly in many different instances is not all startups need venture funding and people don't get that. They don't know that. It's a really funny misconception, both on the operator and on the VC side that you have to have VC funding. Yeah, and there's you a, absolutely yeah. don't. And there's a lot of great mechanisms to fund companies mm-hmm. because the returns profile for, for VC, I, I mean, it's meant for a very specific type of company where it's a company where when you throw money at it, it solves all of your problems, whether that's customer acquisition, engineering risk, go-to-market scaling. You can just throw money at it and fix it. There are a lot of companies that are more like products, right, or mm-hmm. things building infrastructure that they will make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. They'll make good money. 
it's not a venture problem though. Mm-hmm. And so a structure like a loan or private equity or, or other types of securities offerings, I mean, that, that's what a form D filing is broadly. It's just like any type of securities offering. You can raise money in a lot of different ways and make a lot of money in a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's good advice to entrepreneurs is to, to look outside the VC too. Yeah. And to, to well, I just, I also, I just heard a st- one company that we actually looked at, it was a few months ago, turned around and raised from a growth equity shop instead because yeah. they couldn't raise venture funding. And it worked. It, like he, They were able to get the funding that they needed. It was a totally different approach, like more of a buyout approach, but it was still like it, it was no, able to fundamentally fuel the growth of the company. Yeah. My first summer, I talked to a company doing, they're called Nomad Propin, which is this, a weird shout out, but they're doing frac sand, mobile frac sand and frac mining operations. Mm-hmm. They needed like $10 million. I'm like, guys, I mean, I, I can't underwrite that. You know, you're, you're literally, you're just buying some machines and putting them all together on a, a pipe. Like, I'm sure you'll make money. They went out, they got a loan at like, really generous terms from private equity they're out running right now website mm. looks beautiful mm-hmm. it sounds like they're killing it in all regards and and they just needed that that push away from venture too sometimes. so what do you think the what do you think the like sex appeal of vc do you know what i mean like i feel like what what is that? yeah i mean so i think that there's i've talked a little bit about this on, on a couple other forums not necessarily on the podcast mm. there's this uh interesting dynamic between media and venture capital Mm. whether that's the tv show silicon valley or the news articles that tech crunch or the new york times the wall street journal forbes release a lot of those focus on venture venture backed startups because those are the headlines that make the they get the most clicks right right somebody raises 30 billion dollars you're not going to see that from your lifestyle you know bottling business or something like that right. um, but you could make a lot of good money off a bottling business so everybody feels inclined to make these giant returns because that's what humans like to read about it's these outsized returns and it fuels a cycle where vcs then prop up companies they they push you to move fast and to break things even when sometimes you not, may not necessarily want to be doing that and then that in turn leads to more media cycles. And then you feel like you have to have these charismatic founders, these personalities too, like Elon or mm-hmm. someone like that. And and it, it all sort of goes circularly in that regard. That's uh, interesting. Like the, the, the relationship between VC and media. I always knew that there was a very strong correlation between like social media profiles and like how you're driving your network growth or sourcing companies, but I don't think it was, it's ever been explicitly outlined like that. Yeah, yeah. Walter Thompson from TechCrunch and I were talking about this on Twitter space a couple months ago, and, hmm. and, and we were both challenging each other and like, how do you solve that problem? Yeah. And, and the issue is, is the only way you solve it is with essentially generational change to say we're going to prop up the best entrepreneurs, not the best personalities, mm-hmm. and continue to back those companies because those will generate the best returns. Yeah. But you don't need the best story, even. But historically, the best stories have always been the things that get funded. The things that get funded raise more money yeah. because that's how venture well, works. It's actually interesting. I think so. The one piece of critical feedback that I've gotten on my newsletter was from a founder that is not in our portfolio, nor did I even really know who they were. I had never seen the company, but he responded to my email with this like very thoughtful. It was like, "Love what you're doing. This is great." But as a founder, I hate seeing the form D filings because we take time and effort and money into preparing for a thoughtful announcement and making sure that it's an exclusively covered funding from TechCrunch and you know whatever and I think so my first response that's really interesting feedback yeah yeah, my my first response to that is that if it's on the internet someone's gonna find it before well right right. so (laughs) right so my first so my first response to that and so he said he was like I I would much rather have a slap on the wrist from the SEC and just not file it in this in the case that somebody picks it up and amplifies it before I have given the go-ahead to TechCrunch to give the exclusive. Which is also why a lot of people don't, don't file. file. And so yeah. it all comes back circularly. It's it's an interesting problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. My first response to that was obviously being defensive. Don't fucking ask the New York Times people to you know ask permission for all the politicians that they report on. Like, that's bullshit. <laughs> but, don't ask the paparazzi to, to right. not follow totally. you. Totally. And not to not to draw any sort of... Compa- I'm not a journalist by any means, but it's a similar... You know, it's a similar parallel to draw. But I think the... So 
that was my initial response. It was very like, you know, defensive, whatever. And then I think there was like, I don't know. I've asked a few founders and they've had similar responses as well. Then just don't file it or, you know, it's, you know, whatever. But there have been, there's this other kind of opinion or response to that critique where it's, he's right because you can, you can like extract so many like assumptions or like management structure or even who's participated in the round based on who's on the form D and like whatever, et cetera. And so I think there's interesting like evidence to back up both sides. Ultimately what I ended up deciding on was like I'll I'll float the announcements with companies that have raised sub 20 million just because if the early stages is where it really matters right then i i can totally respect that and it'll be more of an opt out not an opt in i'm not asking you permission but i'm telling you if there's something that really cannot be reported on you can let me know which which, yeah i think that's very kind of you i i take the other stance of look if you don't want it you should keep it off the internet because literally I mean, if you go deep enough down the internet rabbit hole, you can find my slam poetry competitions from high school. <laughs> right. Look, it's all out there. It's, I totally it's all agree. out there. Like, it will totally stay agree. out there. But forever. I do think that when you're trying to cultivate a community that is pretty small, like, this is this is very strictly a Boston-based newsletter. Yeah. That I think stepping on as little toes as possible is probably the best way to go. Yeah. Or that's kind of what I figure. I think that's fair. Mm-hmm. All right. So, going back... I think that's one outlet for you. The other side that we haven't talked about that I think is equally interesting Mm -hmm. because I too am considering getting some type of gym instruction certification. You you teach spin classes. Mm -hmm. It's so much fun. How how did you start (laughs) teaching spin? What, what, what's the backstory there? Okay. So in college we had, we had a rec center that was like the like hub of like, campus like it was the one it was the night it was a super nice building it was recently renovated four floors instructors must be (laughs) nice this was umass's oh my like chef's kiss when they pulled this off finally it was like it was awesome so there was a bunch of people always there and so the staffing was really great there were always people walking around you had personal trainers like whatever so i loved the like I loved that. And I've always been super into working out. I think it's just been like, I'm very routine and structure driven, not structure driven per se, but I think more routine driven. I really like to like stay consistent with something and, you know, work on it, see the fruits of it, whatever. And so I've always been a like workout in the morning before I do anything kind of person. And so that was part of my routine at UMass. And then they offered or they had some sort of job opening for a spin instructor. And I was like, well, I'm going to get I'm going to work out anyways. I might as well get paid for it. So yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. It's like, why fucking not? And so I got my certification and I started teaching at UMass. I was obviously not great to start. And then you kind of just like slowly develop a muscle memory for stuff that you say at what point in, in class to put this certain song and at what point to either back off or dynamically change the routine like that kind of it, stuff almost like in venture capital you you're you're on a pitch call the same thing yes, happens it yeah. is and i so i so draw the parallels but so i started teaching at umass and then i went to i graduated and i was like i can't like it's this now part of my routine i can't stop doing it so i started teaching at cycle bar which is a franchise i don't know if they have i think they have it in i think it's global it, actually. if they have a cycle bar i will tell you that i have never been and just sorry to put this on record for the podcast i have done precisely one spin class <laughs> thanks to my dear friend mr sean keegan it did not go well for me i'm i'm actually not in bad shape right now either but it turns out that walking and running shape yeah. is very different than cycling shape and my muscles were not happy for multiple days after that yeah so. well it's also just like a different set of muscles than you ever typically trade for even even on bike like Biking on a road is fundamentally different than spinning. You're not like there's no change in altitude or terrain, or you're not balancing. I mean, you, you do you got to increase the resistance though sometimes. And you go for you the know, yeah, yeah, that's very true. Is... But you are never going over any sort of rock or anything. Like fair, it's, smooth, yeah, it's smooth sailing. It's safe sailing. But so I yeah, so I went to a cycle bar for a year or a year and a half or something, and then I moved. Um, 
downtown and I wanted to or I took a break I started at hyperplane and wanted to like give myself some 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 room to to ease into the new routine and then I was like all right I gotta get back into it so I reached out to Equinox and I now tea twice a week and just if anybody's in Boston, where can we find you teaching a, a yes. spin class? Well, it could change, but as of now, it's Tuesdays at six thirty in the morning at Franklin Street in Boston, or Wednesdays at seven a.m. in the Seaport. Okay, the Seaport's nice. I went there today. Yes, it's super the nice. Steam room is really hot at Seaport, though, which is <laughs> that was that was. You can adjust the temperature. <laughs> Somebody probably adjusted the steamer temperature <laughs> all the way up. Like, you can, but are, am I the right person to adjust the temperature of the steamer? <laughs> right. like, are you going to be the one who turns it down by a yeah, few degrees? Yeah, come on. Like, I, don't, I don't know if I want to be that guy. Yeah. Like, I'm not that guy. <laughs> no, that's, that's, a huge, that's a huge undertaking. You, you got to own it. If you're going to turn the steam room up or down, that's really good to know because now I'm going to turn the one on Beale Street in San Francisco up. But yeah. uh, apologies in advance. <laughs> <laughs> watch out. Watch out. <laughs> but yeah, so Equinox has been so much fun. I think the... I I think I honestly like I think six months into hyperplane I was I was getting I was hitting a like to be comp like completely honest I was hitting this like plateau of you're you're so intellectually stimulated every day in the job that we are like you're constantly looking for the next new thing to think about differently to ask for experts opinions on to diligence and so I think that overstimulation I was really leaning into at the expense of any sort of creative outlet. And I didn't have right. spin. I didn't have anything else. It was wake up, go to work. After you work out at a gym, you do whatever routine you want. Go to work, come home, make dinner, go to bed. And that was kind of what I was in for six months. And I, It's bold of you to be making dinner. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> right. That was huge. That was huge. But I think I just kind of got into this like this like lull where I was like, what? Like, why is this? It's exciting during the day. And then you just wake up and you do it again and there's no break. And so I think I, in undertaking the newsletter and then starting back up with spin, that was more of the like, how can, how can I introduce something that isn't all consuming that fits into an already super busy routine busy schedule busy lifestyle? Yeah. And that's actually exciting and gives me a different viewpoint into a lot of different things. I'm meeting so many new people. I'm thinking about, you know, organizing things differently and changing on the fly. I think those are like really important parallels to draw and to bring attention to when you're starting to incorporate something new into a routine that you've you've done but not in the same not under the same circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, so I, I do something pretty similar, or not not pretty similar. I am in no way, shape, or form qualified or should be teaching spin at Equinox. But I, and I've been doing this since I graduated college, I, I continued mentoring a, a robotics team in Colorado, which is why I'm going to Denver next week is for their regional competition. I somehow am the regional game announcer for Colorado. Wow, but, that's a cool fact. And, and every year you get this challenge, you design a robot, your team, like you want to guide the the high school students into designing something that's functional mm-hmm. fits within budget you know it, it's almost like a little mini startup for eight weeks and it, it's a nice little distraction like i zoom into meetings i'm at one or two meetings a week you know talking about obviously texting we're slacking about it on the weekends you know the usual but it's not super time consuming but it does allow me to have that that sort of balance mentally totally. because you really do lose track I, I mean sure the podcast is a good outlet it's still venture the blog, great writing outlet, still venture. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you really need something that fundamentally is not venture. Yeah. Right? And I think that there's so, to underline that point is so important, but to actually tangibly introduce something that doesn't feel comfortable as it stands in your routine today is not to get, you know, fluffy, but I think that that is so so important to yeah. anybody's mental well-being so so are you a creature of routine because i i'm not sure that i am and and i think that you can live a venture capital job in a lot of different lifestyles mm-hmm. i choose to travel a lot as i i'm a big believer in meeting people in person like taking the flight and that that means that my routine does not exist because i'm always somewhere else mm-hmm. or always going to a coffee meeting in the city always going to a different coffee shop something like that mm-hmm. do you find a lot of routine in the job typically yeah, it's 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 a different type of routine than what I'm used to because I think what I was doing at iRobot, what I've always done in college, 
it was always the same things at the same time of day. And that was what consistency meant. And I think that consistency is why people enjoy routines because you have this sense of familiarity in your day to day that you can kind of rely on as like being safe. Right. And so for me, it was never like being a, being in a routine didn't really have to do with that part of it because I think that, you know, I mean, definitely it's, it's nice to like kind of know what you're walking into. Sure. Yeah. The familiarity. For the day. Yep. Yeah. But I think there's also, it wasn't driven by an anxiety to need that. It was more of this. I have seen my mom be super successful and waking up every day and starting the day right and starting your day with endorphins and all the health benefits associated with it, that it just felt, it felt natural to, to start, to start incorporating something consistent into a daily routine. And so that was like yep. high school, middle school. And then slowly as you start to add things on, it just becomes second nature. And I think for me, because I'm competitive with myself. Not, yeah, I mean, not just yourself. I feel like you're competitive. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I'm I mean, relentless. I mean, that's the best way. Yeah. <laughs> but I think, I think the, the, the sense of like consistency and doing something that you're not necessarily, that you, that you never hit a cap. Like you can be, like, there's never a point at which you're going to be like, eh, I've hit my peak for where I want to be fitness wise. You can always get better. There's never a point at which you have maxed out. Because like right. when you max, yeah, you can have goals, whatever. Yeah. But I don't think you can ever, you're never like, oh, all right, well, I'm, I'm done. I'm done with fitness. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm done. There we go. That would be a, that would be a wild experience, actually. What would you even, that would be, that would, I, mean, I would also introduce a lot more like social. Uncertainty. Yeah, yeah totally. Just... Like social constraints and changes. Yeah. Knowing that somebody has hit their like plateau or like their like peak you're like oh well, I, well no that's that's admitting that you peaked and if you admit that you peaked you, you actually <laughs> right. peaked right yes and it, it's funny you mentioned consistency there too because there's this great quote on tiktok and, and it's, uh, <laughs> here it is <laughs> that without commitment you'll never start without consistency you'll never finish yeah and so that's without commitment you'll never yeah, yeah i love yeah. that yeah no it's it i there we go look you know Listen, TikTok hasn't brought too much, but it brought us this quote. This is is probably going to get cut too. You know, I went through a breakup about a year ago. I got got on Sad Bro Gym TikTok, which Mm. is a bunch of like sad people at the gym, like hyping you to go to the gym to get over (laughs) your feelings. And... I mean, it, it works. Yeah, it works. But I also get like great motivational quotes like this. Yes. And, and, so, and then you drop the knowledge. Then you drop the knowledge on the podcast. That's exactly. But no, I, I totally get. I I resonate with that. There's nobody else that you're like looking to for accountability. It's like you're you're competing with yourself to get better at something, and introducing that consistency into your routine allows you to carve out a certain amount of set time a day to really hone in on that. And that's yeah. like. No, it's it's, yeah. it's essential. And, and so putting that back in, in the lens of venture capital, yeah. what are some, what, let's call them, for the sake of all of our programmers in the audience, let's call them subroutines. That was a Fortran joke right there. But what, what do you see as kind of microcosms, things that you think are consistent in venture and that help you succeed on the day-to-day life within your job and structures that you introduce there? Honestly... Not much. Not much. Okay. And I'm I mean, going fair, to be, yeah, yeah. And I'm going to be honest in saying that that I think is one of the strengths of this job, that you're never going to wake up and have the exact same day. You're never going to wake up and you're going to have the exact same realizations at the end of the day, unless those realizations are, I should probably be taking less calls. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I really do think that every day you wake up and you're not sure what you're going to walk into. It's either, you know, you're going to meet this insane company that you have, that you might be doing the deal of, and you have started to form a relationship with somebody that you are going to be in contact with for the next 10 years. First of all, that's extremely daunting, but that's also super exciting. And so I think like the, the consistency comes from the excitement that you feel from talking to so many people and generating so many ideas and being so inspired. But I don't think that fundamentally comes down to any sort of one event or subsector of the industry that you could point to as being like, yeah, if you do that every day, you're going to be a great yeah. do you, VC. Do you have an office routine, though? Like, when you get into the office, do you... Yeah, sometimes, but I... Depending... I mean, honestly, now that a lot of stuff is back in person, like, yeah. if I have a coffee meeting in the morning, like, I won't get into the office till 11 or, like, Interesting. Whatever. Okay. So, I I usually go, try to go into the office first, drop my stuff off, and do everything out of the office. So, I'll oh. go into the office earlier, like, 8, 
mm-hmm. 7.30, go there, draw my stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I do the usual similar thing, which is I drop off my backpack, I turn on the neon signs, and yep. then I go get something from the fridge, usually of the highly caffeinated varietal. Mm. But I think like that in and of itself helps lock me in. For calls, I like actually, a lot of VCs have recurring meetings. Yeah. And although that doesn't seem like a routine in a lot of ways, sometimes whether they're internal or external meetings, having that consistency, I find really helpful Mm. because if you're not on those schedules, you'll lose track of people contacts. Yeah. And, and it, you're just not going to be as effective as an investor in that way. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that there's any part of this industry natural that naturally occurs that is conducive to this sort of mindset that we've been talking about like internal like internally in the industry like for me like I just I don't see I think like doing memos and like doing like market landscapes and stuff like you're developing your own opinion in that sense and there's you know you could there the argument you can make the argument that you can go down like a confirmation bias kind of rabbit hole yeah absolutely totally but is there anything in the industry that you think you can kind of you can for all the people like that don't necessarily have a skill or something that they like think of to to do external to their career is there anything internal that you think you could do or yeah so i mean i actually find and i i frequently find that i use my english degree a lot more than my geophysics degree when we go back to talking about engineering i have a degree in geophysics i've worked at nasa jpl i don't use that degree or that background very frequently i'm probably going to be using it tonight doing some analysis of someone's proprietary chemicals that's like the first time I've actually used my degree in months. I think there's a lot of creativity in how you phrase things. A lot of what I do and what I consider my personal value add for companies is helping with decks, helping to refine a pitch. I think there's a lot of creativity in how you pitch and a lot of different ways where you have to tailor the pitch to the person Mm. and think of creative ways to communicate an idea in a new framework that is exciting, like, we invest in a lot of old industries. You want to get people excited about stuff that your regular person, if you're out at a bar telling someone, they're like, oh, you work in agriculture lending? <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> cool. <laughs> cool. <laughs> and, and so if you want to get people excited about that, you have to really go down a, a proper path of you know, manipulating language, manipulating somebody. Okay, so give me an example. Agricultural lending, make it sexy. Ag lending. Well, Abigail. Where'd you grow up? Brookline, Massachusetts. Brookline, Massachusetts. Are there farms in Brookline, Massachusetts? None. None. No, one. There's one. You know why there's only one farm in Brookline, Massachusetts? Mm. Has nothing to do with how populous it is. It's because people these days cannot get loans for their dairy farms. And increasingly, more and more farmers are unable to secure operating loans for their dairy farms. Introducing Bank Barn. Now... <laughs> <laughs> and, and sorry, I should I should put a disclaimer here. I, I am I'm on the board of directors for Bank Bar and shameless supporter of the company. Love them to death. <laughs> I spoke with them too. They're pretty fucking cool. <laughs> yeah, Bank Barn. Yes. Automated servicing for agriculture loans. How do you make it easier to get an ag loan? You make the underwriting easier. You make it easier to service. You make it seamless for a bank and a farmer to interface. That's how you get more farms. Mm. In That's there we go. Easy solution. And you know what more farms leads to? More cows. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. Uh, Sign me up. I'm I, in. I don't know what the solution for more cows is, but fair <laughs> enough. <laughs> Listen, there we go. I love it. But and that's that's off the top of my head. I you know. No, I think that, but I but I totally agree. I think that there's the fundamentally like creativity in more of the trivial things that you see so much every day of that you kind of just like like the it doesn't become something that you're thinking of as an opportunity to be creative with. It's just something that is second right. nature to the industry. You can that be you... creative. You can be funny. You can, well, like a lot of what I try to do in the blog, right? The, the blog itself is not, you know, they're not always exciting blog posts. A lot of them talk about serious, like structural issues. We have venture capital. You Photoshop the cover photo. You, you have some fun with it. You, you just have to have fun. And I think sometimes VCs, especially junior VCs in our peer group, they get too caught up in the the daily grind to understand that you have to have fun with what you're doing at work. You have to have fun with what you're doing outside of work. You cannot be in the office 24-7. You will collapse mm. very fast. But you get this innate creativity if you are able to mix things up. Yeah. But also the, the routine can be comforting too. And you have to find the balance that's right for you. 
I, I personally am not a creature of routine. I, I'm working out of the East Coast this yeah, week. Yeah, so tell me how that works. I, frankly, I find that I'm more productive at random coffee shops than I ever am in the office. Okay. Because if I'm so used to being somewhere, mm. I get a lot more distractible. Versus if I'm somewhere new, I have to focus on the familiar thing in front of me, my laptop, mm. and I have to get my work done. Yeah. So I actually started doing, and if Jim ever sees this on my calendar, what, <laughs> what I call a WFP, which is I work from Pacifica. And <laughs> I drive the 20 minutes out to Pacifica. I go to this random coffee shop. <laughs> I first take 15 minutes to soak in the beachy, fresh, saltwatery air. Mm. And I get 8x the amount of work done that I would have gotten done in the office that day. Mm. And so I just block my entire day, no meetings, like no calls. Wow. Just work from Pacifica. And I, that's how I get all my writing done. When I'm in New York, same thing. I just go to a coffee shop. I get my writing done because it's a new place. It's a new experience. And I just am able to zone in in a way that I just physically cannot. Yeah. See, that to me is so interesting because if I'm in a coffee shop or any sort of new area, unless it's a pretty boring environment, I am constantly distracted by my surroundings. This is, this is also an interesting question for you. When you think of what makes you um, productive, yeah, is it music? Is it lighting? Is oh. it like oh, timing so I'm, of this, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a hundred percent honest with yeah. you, and this is my venture capital fatal flaw. Like the thing that if there's anything about me, I am severely addicted to caffeine. The thing mm. that makes me the most productive is pounding four or five Red Bulls and staying up until five in the morning yes, when literally psychotic. nothing exists. <laughs> yeah, see, <laughs> Thank you. That- <laughs> uh, but, but so when I think about that in the office context and in the context of what we do for a living, that's not really the healthiest mindset necessarily. And I, I, I've had to balance that out. So when I, I obviously can't stay up until five if I have meetings at nine in person. And it's all about different strategies. And for me, the thing that I determined is I'm most effective with writing or creative work when I'm just not anywhere I'm familiar with. So when I'm nowhere that feels like home, because Mm. if I feel like home, I just want to be distracted. Yeah. Or relax. Yeah, I got that. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to turn this back on you, which a little bit, Mm -hmm. a little bit. So when you think about your job and the day to day, what parts of that routine or not are the things that you enjoy the most? And... What things do you wish were different and why? Hmm. So I think the stuff that I like about VC has stayed true since I interned for Project 11. I love the constant like collaboration, all of the, the fact that you have to set up recurring calls with your colleagues. That's part of what being successful is. Like you have to have your finger on the pulse like being up to date with the industry and the market, that's part of the job. It's not something that you're reading before work for pleasure or you know skimming the news. No, no, no. Like that is fundamentally part of what you need to do. And so I think like a lot of the stuff that would be considered like extracurricular at a lot of other companies and like industries is central to what will make us successful in the future yeah absolutely i mean going on twitter even right like Like, literally like who the fuck writes a blog post and is this is my job i mean besides journalism yeah no i think those those things are what i really enjoy about it because not just because you get to do all this fun stuff that isn't traditionally part of a you know typical nine to five but it's more so that the stuff that you're doing is stuff that you enjoy doing. It's stuff that like every day you're like, wow, like this is fucking awesome. I would be doing this no matter what. I would be doing this if I were working at iRobot still, but it wouldn't be considered my job and it wouldn't be considered, you know, fundamentally pushing me forward. And that's totally the difference. So I think like those are the, those are the things that I like. I think the stuff that I don't, or I haven't gotten used to yet, I think is, is more of this just like lack of... Lack of success metrics prior to understanding whether or not a company is going to undergo a successful exit. Yeah, basically the the time cycle of the industry and the feedback loop. Yeah. The slowness of the feedback loop. Totally. And I think that that's that's mitigated internally with like management and stuff. So I think that, like I think there's ways to, to think about that differently. But one of the things that I have struggled with is just like gaining the confidence to push a deal that might not look 
like what a successful pre-seeder seed yeah, deal looks exactly. like. But there's something about it that I like. Uh, we gotta take this bet. I, I, I call it. I call it the VC tingle. It's it's your spidey <laughs> sense. <laughs> there it is, and yeah. it's like, how do you know if that is a sense that's worth like almost of dollars, yeah, yeah, like yeah. risking your career and LP's money on? And I just don't think that that's a that it that's that's just not like a an intensity <laughs> that I'm used to grappling with i think that i just have and i also think that it's it's definitely it's it's a product of 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 like my relationship with money i think maybe i like i grew up substantially less affluent than most most of my peers in brooklyn by no means Uh, no i I mean yeah it's i think that that's very fair yeah totally so and i think yeah so i think there's this 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 weird and and a lot of it people like these aren't specific to me as like somebody who you know has like qualms about that kind of stuff but i think I think it's it's most people get over that by you know false confidence of just yeah, I know you, that this you, is you fake be. it till you make it it's totally like you, you and that's have a very real point. thing in yeah. this industry a hundred percent and sometimes you have to you have to engage with those types of like you you have to employ the, that that kind of thought process to to be to to sit in the same room as yep. as certain people but I think that's that's one of the things that I haven't fully become comfortable with nor is it something that I think I ever will be comfortable with but I think it's just something that you have to you have to think about differently and like your frameworks around it have to be have to be executed on in different situations differently yeah I think that makes a ton of sense and and yeah honestly like there's no easy solution I I, I don't really I think there came a point where after like the first couple of years for me, I just basically said, look, I'm either going to be good at this or I need to find a new job anyways. And so I might as well hope that I am and bet on that side of the coin Yeah. Uh, because one way or another, I will be finding a new job in eight years if I'm not good yeah, at it. I so, know. And that, <laughs> which is, that's, that's not a very typical <laughs> thing to have to say, but yeah, yeah, there, there really isn't any great feedback loop. Do you... Do you see do you see that like hindering the ability for you to be successful in the short term? You know, I think realistically there's an interesting thesis that a lot of people believe that all VCs need to be entrepreneurs first at some point in time. Yeah. Because entrepreneurs are the eternal optimists. They believe that their companies will always work out one way or another because they've been through that journey. They they know what it's like to have that belief. Mm-hmm. I actually instead kind of like being the pessimist and I I like to find people who balance that out around me and me saying, look, I think it won't work for these reasons. And then when you really get that feeling, like there've been a couple of companies like Stratum AI where I just felt like I knew and we're two years down the line with Stratum. I don't, we still have a lot to figure out with the company, but you know, you get those first bets in and it's two years and they're still around. Yeah. And that's some validation. It's a not it's a small point, but like they're still cooking one mm-hmm. way or another. So yeah, I, I don't know. I, yeah. I think you just have to, to run with it. We're gonna we're gonna transition a bit because I actually think that's a, that's a good point to get into the, the repeated questions that we ask people. Yeah. And we're gonna flip the order because of what we've been talking about. Okay. And we're gonna start by saying, What's your biggest regret in venture capital so far? Oh, that's a good one. My biggest regret I think it's Honestly, when I think about what I what I wish I would have done, it's always things that I should have said yes to, that I had the ability to say yes to in the moment, and it was either lazy or I just didn't want to, or I didn't think that there was going to be a value that came from it. And then the next day, I you know I noticed that somebody showed up that I would have loved to have a conversation with, or you know it was a venue that I've always wanted to go to, or you know something like that. So I think saying yes to meetings or events that traditionally you wouldn't think you would be getting value out of 10 times out of 10 those are the things that i regret not going to or saying no to you regret saying no and i mean we all regret saying no to companies too totally i've always been of the thesis that you're not only a yes man in this industry you're a yes and Mm. and so somebody's at the bar they're like oh do you guys want to drink i'm like yeah let's go around a shots (laughs) 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 and so most people would take that analogy and not go the direction that you just (laughs) did but hey 
I mean, <laughs> all power to you. Fair enough. That's uh, fair enough. No, I, I do think that's extremely valid. And, and I've certainly had FOMO. I, I said no to Miami Tech Week first year, and look what happened there. It's who knows, who knows, who knows. I don't want to get called a third tier VC by Keith, so we're going to stop talking about Miami. Oh, but triggered. triggered. <laughs> <laughs> I did buy the hoodie. <laughs> I know. I I need to too. Just strictly to put it on Twitter. It's it's a pretty good looking hoodie. Nicole makes good swag. But, <laughs> but to avoid shout out to Nicole. Avoid we're gonna, we're gonna move on. What company, public or private, would you like to see fail and why? Oh, Coinbase. All right, let's let's hit, hit me with it. Why <laughs> the coin, Boston why, why base? Coin, why Coinbase? No, I'm not. I don't. I'm not actually calling out Coinbase, but I do. I would love not love. That's no, that I'm not enthusiastic about anything failing, but if I were to have to pick something like, sorry, but like I crypto, like, let's just, can we just move on? Can we just move on? It's just not an industry that fundamentally makes any sense, none. And it does not have buy-in from foreign entities or from government agencies. And though the inkling of, of those steps came and went. There, we have proven time and time again that this doesn't work. We need to move on. It's done. All right. I'm going to push back on you on that. And okay. this is because I... <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> yeah. Well, so well, let me tell a story. Yeah. Uh, was a few months ago, I was trying to get Taylor Swift tickets. <laughs> as one does. As we all were. <laughs> as we all were. And, and that was one of those instances where I saw that experience play out. And I'm a firm believer that there are some good applications of crypto and we're seeing some of the issues on on banks like transparency and traceability where blockchain technology some coins do have real applications the issue is the infrastructure wasn't there no i disagree go back nfts tickets tickets so let's talk about tickets put your ticket on an nft you can cap the transfer the resale price you can cap the number of times it's transferred you can effectively get rid of scalpers instantly yeah but do you know how many do you know how, how many different parties require opt-in for that yeah and, that is and impossible if, to get if, everybody if on the same page if you don't get people on the same page like you never have generational change do you think the united states of america would be here <laughs> but today is that, so <laughs> like, is that a generational change is that a bet on generational change i, I think it's i think it's a bet on generational change i'm willing to take it in this cycle we were not in the last cycle as a fund or as an individual i would have not touched it in the last cycle i think both the valuations that crypto has gotten down to now and the fact that the people left in the industry are not people who are there to make quick money yeah. they're people there to build infrastructure and mm-hmm. build real businesses because they believe in the core technology yeah so i totally and agree so I think there's a lot of potential for it, mm-hmm. but I also think that the day trading, the speculation, that is very valid to call out. And the fact that we created an industry for absolutely no reason other than to trade shit coins. Like, yeah, I agree. And I, I mean, I think that there, I think there's validity to the, to the idea and to the frameworks around the benefits of blockchain and decentralized I think like from a security standpoint, from a data privacy standpoint, there's a lot of benefit to the applications in different industries for decentralized technology. Is that crypto? I don't think so. I don't fundamentally I don't think that a monetary value associated with a coin that actually isn't real. Like it's literally five guys in the middle of nowhere, like coding the back uh, yeah, end of shit. No, that, that's fair. like so. So that's I just don't. That's not real. You that, can't make that gets money to the point on like, to the infrastructure question. And yeah, what and actually... so so I agree with you in the sense that I think that this cycle, whoever is left are the true builders, but whoever is building, I still I, I'm not. I'm not going to believe it until I see something that actually works. And I think that there's a exponential increase in the possibility that something works now that we have the actual people who are left who are actually working to build products that, you know, that aren't, aren't, aren't relying on hype, but until that until it actually happens, materializes. That, no, no, I, I think that that's, no complete, that's completely fair. So no offense, Coinbase, no offense, Brian. No, no, I, 
all offense to Coinbase, <laughs> whatever. We, we can, we can, this is, these are, these are, we're not pulling punches on the podcast. If we pulled punches yeah. on the podcast, it wouldn't be about hot takes from early career there VCs. <laughs> they would be mid takes from early career VCs. Okay. Last question that, that we're going to ask is what advice would you give to someone who like you wanted to work in VC? I, I try to avoid the term breaking into VC. I, I don't believe that's an industry you should really actively seek out being in because if you're actively seeking it out, you're usually doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. But what advice would you give there? Yeah. So I've had a few conversations with specifically like younger women who are looking at this as a career path. And I think that a lot of what drives people towards this industry is like what we talked about before, like the sex appeal, like this whole like yep. it's shiny and it's you're an investor and you're not really doing the work that a PE or a public equities trader is is doing from a diligence perspective. A lot of it relies on qualitative analysis, not necessarily quantitative analysis, at least in the earlier stages. And so I think really understanding what you're good at and why you want this position or a, a position in this field, I think is really, really important. Like fundamentally, once you get here, what are you going to do that's going to change something about either the industry or yourself or the people that you're working with? Like, where are your skills? Where, where are the skills that you can identify where you are actually going to be good at making the decisions that this industry requires you to, to be successful? And I don't know that a lot of people have the answers because I don't know that a lot of people really understand what the day-to-day of this job really is. I mean, and, and that almost is a topic for a whole nother podcast. Absolutely. I don't, I don't know if there is a day-to-day in this job, and that's part of the Right, so then when you think yeah. about it, it's what what do they want? What, do, what does a job in VC really mean? Yeah. What is When somebody's like, I'm trying to break into VC, why? Like, why? what yeah. about it that... What about VC? And you can you can say that about anything, like engineering. You know, what, right, what do you want yeah, to do as an engineer? You, but a lot of the responses to what do you? Why do you want to be a firefighter? Why do you want to be an engineer? It's I want to save lives. I want to you know solve really hard problems. And you can say that about VC, but it's like a second second degree. Like I think everything that you can say about venture as a why do you want to do this, you can scratch that same itch from starting a company or yep. from doing something in another industry. Right. And, and I think you and I are pretty uniquely positioned where my why for venture is always because I get too bored if I focus on the same thing for the, the long yeah. time. Yeah. Oh, and totally. That's, yeah, that's... And I and I also think that like this industry is very conducive to technical thinkers that are social. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, Seriously, absolutely. like yeah. if you can't build a network, you're done. You're done. In this industry, you're done. But I think that there are different traits that are more conducive or not to to that type of success but i think that fundamentally that is a huge part of this yeah absolutely all right quick last thing before we wrap up we actually never talked about hyperplay and what you do for a living <laughs> tell That's us probably the best podcast indicator is that we don't even get to the real stuff yeah i i mean i i think it's important to to discuss some of this T- tell us a little bit about your firm your job what what you invest in where yes. can people find you if they want to hit you up on the internet absolutely so hyperplane we started back in 2015 primarily as a deep tech so we were doing a lot of harvard and mit spin outs but we always had this thesis of machine learning, automation, computer vision. We were doing some sensors, IoT. So those were, you know, it was inclusive of, of hardware commoditized. Yeah, the fun but stuff. Yeah. There we go. And since then, we've moved away from the, or we've moved away from proprietary hardware as as a component of deep tech. And we've just shifted towards this broader thesis of automation, applied AI, automated workflows. So we're, we're Definitely, as like industry characterizes it, probably a generalist fund. But for you know, for most of the companies that we invest in, we'll need some sort of proprietary software component to it. So AI and machine learning. Trust me, it sounds buzzy, but we've always been there. 2015, we said it first. No, we didn't actually say it first, but it was definitely in the original thesis. And we usually invest pre-seed and seed. We don't go. We we probably will not be check writers into or entry check writers into the a but we do between one to two and a half million dollar checks into pre-seed and seed companies we don't have an ownership target we don't have revenue milestones or requirements for us to to write a check 
and we will invest kind of all over. And then my my area has been healthcare as of recent. My academic career Ooh, was tea, in tea. Mm, mm. Not not real tea. Oh. It's, but this is new. I I hadn't heard this before. Yeah, kind of. So I don't know, my my high or my academic career was in orthopedic and prosthetic robotics, so I've always kind of had that healthcare lens. But I've been much deeper into the AI-based healthcare solutions recently, which has makes, been makes a lot of sense. Very, very fun. fun. High valuations, but very fun. <laughs> very fun. Very high valuations, but very fun. All right. And where can people find you if they want to contact you? Abigoversy.substack.com. That's my Boston Tech newsletter. If you want to know all of the form D's that got aggregated slash all the funding announcements and financings or, right. or Twitter, Twitter or LinkedIn, Abigail Rissi, hit me up. Sick. <laughs> On that note, we're going to close out. I'm going to go eat the remains of the cookie <laughs> monster. We have four pastries here and four Andrew hasn't touched any of them I have and not, it's no. half gone. <laughs> half gone. I, hey, we have to get good snacks for the podcast guests. So Abigail, it's been great having you on. Thank um, you. This is so much fun.